You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the word of our God together. This morning we turn to the gospel according to Matthew, the last chapter, chapter 28. The first seven verses of Matthew 28 are also the text for this morning's sermon. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is risen, hallelujah. He is our victorious head. Sing his praises, hallelujah. So go the opening lines of that ancient hymn that we have sung together a few moments ago. Today, the church of Jesus Christ around the world may celebrate Easter. And what is Easter? I dare say that Easter is the most important event 
in the history of the world. And of course I realize that there have been other important events, both good and bad. If you're a student of history, you might want to think of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the Edict of Milan in 313, the fall of Rome in 476, the fall of Constantinople in 1453, the Great Reformation of 1517 and following, or perhaps D-Day of 1944, or what about more recently the fall of communism in 1989 in Western Europe, and then of course there is also September the 11th, 2001. And undoubtedly you can add many more important events to this list. And yet I would say to you there is a sense in which none of these events can compare to what happened outside of Jerusalem in that fourth decade of the first century. So many of the events just mentioned are negative and describe the fall of this or of that. Here, however, is something profoundly positive. And so many of those events deal with death and destruction. Here, however, is something that deals with life and glory. And so many of them have to do with sadness and with conflict. But here is something that is so full of joy and peace. Why, Easter is not only history's greatest event, it is also, you might say, its best event. It really makes a difference. It changes the life of the world. And it changes our lives as well. For all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, Easter represents victory. Yes, and to see that, let us also turn to our text of this morning. I preached to you on the theme, Easter, the transforming feast of Jesus Christ. And we shall see it's a feast because of the confidence that the risen Lord gives to us, the joy that the risen Lord works in us, and the hope that the risen Lord showers upon us. Well, beloved, when it comes to Easter, the 28th chapter of Matthew's Gospel represents a popular passage And over the years we have read it often, but nevertheless, like so much of Holy Scripture, it truly is an inexhaustible treasure of insight. Look, for example, at how this chapter opens. It begins after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week. Now, at first sight, these words do not strike us as all that important. They seem to be nothing more than a comment on the time They're saying that what about is or what is about to be described in this chapter all started after the Sabbath and on the first day of a new week. It's nice of Matthew to give us the when. But is that all that he is doing? Further investigation reveals that all of the gospel writers begin the Easter event in much the same way. Mark 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, very early on the first day of the week. 
Luke 24, verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. John 20, verse 1, early on the first day of the week. And from that list you can tell that half of them explicitly mention the Sabbath and all of them mention the first day of the week. Now why do they do that? Is this nothing more than a happy coincidence or is it simply perhaps a matter of literary style? Now beloved, you might say that this is their way of informing us that one era has now ended and that a whole new era is about to begin. In reality, you can say the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead is the dividing line between the old period of history and the new. For look, it is not an accident that two of the most Jewish writers, namely Matthew and Mark, refer to the Sabbath. Matthew says after the Sabbath. Mark states when the Sabbath was over. What is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is the last day of the Jewish week. It it closes off that week. And in addition, the Sabbath is a reminder of two of the greatest events in the history of the universe, namely creation and liberation. Exodus 20 gives us the fourth commandment and sets aside the seventh day as a Sabbath, all because at creation God rested on it, blessed it, and made it holy. And Deuteronomy 5 gives us the fourth commandment too, but their creation is very much tied to liberation. The great liberation of Israel out of the house of slavery and the land of bondage. And so you can say creation and liberation are the two themes that actually dominate over the entire Old Testament period. Time and time again, Israel is reminded of that. Indeed, every Sabbath day was to Israel a reminder of that. But now, beloved, as Christ rises from the dead, we are told the Sabbath is over. And what happens to Christ happens after the Sabbath. The resurrection of our Lord takes place on the first day of the week and not on the last day. Yes, and all of the gospel writers tell us this. And why do they tell us this? Well, beloved, to to indicate and to spell out to us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's way of making a new beginning, a new start. A new history. Whereas the time past was marked by creation and liberation, the time to come is going to be marked by restoration. With Easter resurrection time begins in the church of Jesus Christ. And you can tell, beloved, that the church at that time understood this very well. 
Why did the believers immediately begin to meet together on the first day of the week? Why did their worship center on that day? And why did they start calling it the Lord's Day? And why has the Christian church ever since adopted it as its special day? It's all a reminder. A constant reminder that Easter ushers in a whole new era. Beloved, we are now living in the time of victory over death. We are now living in the shadow of Christ's great resurrection from the dead. And every Lord's Day is a reminder that we have a risen and exalted Lord. We are living in resurrection time. But that's not all. For during this time, a new program dominates as well. And you find that program at the end of this chapter in the verses 19 and 20 where the Lord says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. You see, along with resurrection time, there comes a new resurrection program. And it's all about going out, going on the offensive, bringing the gospel to the nations. It's all about making and baptizing and teaching people to become disciples of Jesus Christ. It's all about obedience to him. Obviously then, when our Lord introduces, or what our Lord introduces, is a new time. Filled with a universal calling. In other words, this is not a time to rest. This is not a time simply to sit back and enjoy and to savor. No, this is the time to really get to work and to witness. It's a time to go. The church of Jesus Christ. It receives its calling to conquer the world with the gospel. And that is quite a task. But nevertheless, it's not a task that the church accomplishes all by itself. And that's why, beloved, in this chapter to resurrection time and resurrection program, there is also added resurrection power. Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Who accompanies the people of God as they go out into all the world? None other than the person of Jesus Christ. And what empowers the people of God as they take on this huge task? Nothing else but the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. His person, His power, His presence. 
Go with us. And all of that makes for one thing. It makes for confidence. Great confidence. Those who follow Jesus Christ can rightly be the most confident of all people. As we live in resurrection time, as we follow the resurrection program, as we are sustained and enabled by resurrection power, we can go forth. And fear and fright, insecurity, uncertainty, weakness, and timidity. Those are all the kind of words that should be banished from our hearts and from our minds. The risen Lord of Easter, beloved, has changed our time, our clocks. He's altered our focus. And he takes away our weakness. But that's not all that he's done. He's done more. For look at who next step on the stage that Easter morning long ago. There are women and there are angels. First we are told that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were going to the tomb where Jesus had been laid. And Mary Magdalene, by the way, was that woman out of whom the Lord Jesus had driven a number of demons. And the other Mary was probably the wife of Clopas and the mother of James and John. And together they were going back to the tomb to do some unfinished business. Some business that had been interrupted by the rest of the Sabbath day. But still, as they go, they're not alone. But we're also told that an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. And furthermore, we are told that his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And finally, their effect on the soldiers is described. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook And they became like dead men. Literally, they were scared stiff. In any case, beloved, Matthew describes both women and angels as being very much involved in the events of that Easter morning long ago. But you might ask, why are they there? Why does God lead, cause them to be there? What is the meaning of the presence of the women and of the angels? My beloved, when it comes to both angels and women, we need to think of access. In the first place, we need to think of the Old Testament and access forbidden or denied. Where in the Old Testament do angels play perhaps their most prominent role? 
Is it not in the Garden of Eden after the fall into sin? And does Genesis 3.24 not say that after God drove man out, he, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life? It were the cherubim angels that prevented people from going back to Eden. They enforce God's edict that now paradise was off limits. But beloved, not only were the angels involved in this, the women were too. If you were a woman in Israel, your access, especially your access to the temple was limited. And indeed, the temple in the Old Testament days, as well as in the days of the Lord Jesus, was composed of of a number of courts. The outermost court was called the court of the Gentiles, and that's where a Gentile could go, and that's as far as a Gentile could go. The next court was called the court of the women. And that's where the women could go if they were not ceremonially unclean. But beyond that, there were other courts. Courts that were off limits to women. For example, the court of the Israelites and the court of the priests. And after that came the holy place and the holy of holies. The last four places were all off limits to women. So if you were a woman in the Old Testament era, There were definitely certain things that you were not privy to. There were certain places that you could not go, could not enter, could not show your face. The no admission sign was out. But now look at what happens on Easter morning. Who come down from heaven and remove the stone? Who opened the way into the tomb? Who allows the world into the grave? Why are the angels, the messengers who once restricted access, now make it possible? And besides them, who are the first people who go to the tomb? Who are the first people who hear the good news, the great news of Easter? Whom do the angels address first? Well, who can rightly claim we heard it first? What are the women? Women who once could get only so close to God can now see the place where he lay. So what does that say about Easter? Well, it tells us that Easter is also all about openness and access. It tells us that the way back to the paradise of God is no longer blocked. It tells us that the most glorious event in the history of the world is an event in which we all may share, men and women, male and female, adults and children, 
In short, we have ample reason, all of us, to be equally joyful. What Christ Jesus accomplishes here is for all of us. And that's why you can see that all of the church on that early morning rejoiced at the news of the risen Christ. And later on they rejoiced again even when they saw his hands and his feet. And they kept on rejoicing even when he departed and when they returned to Jerusalem. And later on the Apostle Paul says that we have reason to rejoice in the Lord always. Beloved, Easter is all about joy. This is the gospel of resurrection time, resurrection program, resurrection power, and now also of resurrection access. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, we have a better hope in Jesus Christ, and through him we may always draw near to God. So draw near freely. Draw near daily. Draw near joyfully. All of you. But then, beloved, if Easter is about a new confidence as well as a new joy, it's also about something else, namely new hope. For listen to what the angel says to the women and to us. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. And then he adds, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead. And is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. What wonderful news that is. And indeed, it's so wonderful that it's hard to comprehend and to embrace fully. What does it mean that we have a risen Savior? It means that Christ has overcome death and conquered the grave. It means that the Father is pleased with the redeeming work of His Son and gives it, as it were, His stamp of approval. It means that Christ is the living Redeemer of His people. Why, it means so much. But perhaps more than anything else, it means hope. For what is man's greatest fear Is it not death? Is it not dying? Is it not the grave? You go up the hill, you visit Langley Memorial Hospital, you visit the extended care units, you speak with people who have no faith. And what do you meet? You meet either a stony silence or a false kind of bravado. 
But underneath, there is this huge fear, this fear of of dying, this fear of being put in a box into the ground and disintegrating. This fear that's thinking that maybe 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and that's it. That's all I get. No more. Never to live again. And you know, beloved, that's not so surprising. The psalmist of long ago verbalized it as well. In Psalm 16, we sang that together. He he faces the prospect of being abandoned to the grave and he even talks about returning to the dust of the earth. And what does he do with that fear? Well, in one way, he shoves it aside. But he shoves it aside with the prophetic words, My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. Nor will you let your faithful one see decay. That's the confession of the ancient psalms. And what is that? Wishful thinking, desperate longing, irrational dreaming. Now that's the Christian hope expressed in Old Testament language. And it's a hope that's confirmed by the following words. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And just how true this all is becomes apparent in the New Testament. When we look at what Jesus Christ has done and what he has accomplished then we know that this is the real source of all joy and of all these pleasures. The Christ who has risen ensures that his people will one day rise as well and be with him. Whereas this was not a death in isolation, so it is not a resurrection in isolation. As Paul says it so well in 1 Corinthians 15, he's the first fruits, the first fruits of a great, vast, glorious heart. All who belong to him will share with him. He lives, and therefore we live too. And beloved, is that not something so wonderful that it should color? And actually it should light up all of our days. Oh, I know that for some of you, life is hard. There's sickness, handicap, 
disease and pain to deal with. There is sorrow and there is loneliness. There are trying circumstances and difficult people. There are economic pressures and social concerns. There are all manner of fears and insecurities. And there are even times when we wonder whether this life really, really is worth living. Isn't that right? But you know, precisely at those moments, we need to dig deep into the treasure chest of God's blessings and we need to pull out of that chest this hope. This hope of life everlasting. This hope of glory. This hope that is so magnificently anchored in Jesus Christ who is and always will be the resurrection and the life of his people. Jesus Christ, the King of glory, Lord of goodness, love and light, victory over death and evil, rose in majesty and might. Hallelujah. To resurrection time, resurrection program, resurrection power, resurrection access. We may add, resurrection life forever. Hallelujah. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.